640 Toronto presents Think Tank. The breaking stories you care about. Facts and opinions that get you through the day. Now, let's meet the guests. Let's do that. All those big issues. We run it uninterrupted all the way up until 8 o'clock this morning. We hope our guests are staying warm in this uh, frigid, frigid, late February, leap day, Feb 29. Kevin Vong's an independent MP serving Spadina Ford York as a member of Parliament. Good morning, Kevin. Greg, got my layers, got my vest on, all ready to go. I figured you would, and uh, I know a huge fan of long underwear because uh, I see him in the office. Where no, I don't. Uh, this is not part of the script. Is a producer of the I'm I'm looking on the website and I see it wildly popular. Let's talk with Danny Stover, a nationally syndicated radio program, which you hear here in Toronto, one to four, and of course seven to ten in the evening. Uh, but Glenn, uh, we have we have I haven't been able to have you on Think Tank uh, since you've gone national. When is the national tour? When do you when do you touch down in Winnipeg in in the middle of January? Because we want to we want to be there. We want to know when that happens. <laughs> I, I don't know what you consider a tour, but. I love all you people in Winnipeg, but stopping off in Winnipeg in January, I'm not sure if that's going to be on my list anytime soon. I gotcha. I gotcha. And of course, you hear Glenn on the show uh, with the, I'll call them, wildly popular segments like Did You Know and Say What? Which is which, which do you like better? Do you know or say what? Did you know or say what? Which is better for you? For you? I kind of like Say What because they're usually a bit more breaking news and I get to express a lot more, uh, let's say, animation. Oh, you do? Exaggeration in my segment. You do. Well, we're going to have some animation here. Uh, Let me start with this and I'll go to the federal politician. We're going to get an announcement today, Kevin, from Mark Miller, the immigration minister. And it looks like some pleas from Francois Legault in Quebec have have been heard. Um, There's going to be reinstitution of visas for Mexican citizens. Now, why is that? Asylum claims have spiraled out of control. We have had people coming to Canada from Mexico um, claiming asylum, but they're not all Mexican nationals. Is I'm curious about this. Is the country's tone changing on who Canada imports and the immigration conversation in your mind? Yes, and about time, Greg. I, I know earlier on air you said the government's moving fast, but respectfully on this, I have to disagree because the data shows that the Trudeau government has been asleep at the wheel from the very beginning. In 2015, there were only 110 asylum claims. And then the Trudeau government came into power. They lifted the visa requirement for Mexican visitors in 2016, and it immediately claims more than doubled. Uh, in 2016, you go to 2017, it quintupled to over 1,400. Um, I'm not going to go through all of the dates, but you fast forward to 2023. And last year, the number of claimants was nearly 24,000. Right? And Canadians are compassionate, but we have a process and the numbers don't lie. Our compassion is being exploited and people are jumping the line. And as a son of refugees, mm. my parents followed the process and came into Canada legitimately. So, you know, do you think my parents wanted to spend two years in a refugee camp? Of course not. But they honored the rules. And I think back to my parents doing the right thing and anyone else who is in line now getting screwed because of line skippers abusing a clear loophole created by the pseudo government so better late than never greg glenn do you look and think i mean there's a majority of canadians in a recent poll that says our our country's immigration targets are too high but i worry that how would i put it that 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 data that water supply is a little bit poisoned because people are misconstruing it to talk about immigration as a whole including what kevin's referencing people coming in jumping the line illegally claiming asylum when they're coming here for maybe just a better life and they're trying to you know, kind of go around as opposed to going through 
I, I think it's immigration in this country, I think, has become a bit of a problem. But I think this is a bit of a scapegoat here, just saying that all of it is blamed on Mexican nationals who, yeah, they might be taking advantage of an established loophole, but it's not like they're literally breaking into this country. They're claiming asylum. We have been taking in immigrants from a lot of different countries a lot recently. And until recently, realistically, until it became a political issue, especially when it comes to education or housing, nobody really cared. So Canada has a history of being proud of being an immigrant nation. And if we really, if we want to control that, that's one thing. But the rhetoric is dangerously leaning towards xenophobia or isolationist. And I'm really worried that we're leaning that way. And that is a problem fundamentally for Canada. Do you think that is um, along political lines? Do you think that is more right than left, uh, that we're, we're, we're feeling that sentiment, that it's... I think it's encouraging elements to go, you see, this is why we can't have um, people coming to this country as opposed to if we'd kept the levels at a proper uh, at a proper, you know, uh, data point, then then that kind of quashes that argument. If we've been able to to orchestrate it better, if you will. I, I agree. I don't think this is something you could blame solely on the right or the left. There are definitely parties that are taking more advantage of it. But I think this is something that is more of a symptom of really what's going on in the culture in the country right now. There are a lot of problems. Our healthcare system is overstrained. Our education system is in shambles in a lot of places. A lot of social safety networks are basically not holding up anymore. So I think it's one of those times that we're just looking for something to blame and an easy scapegoat is immigration. It is a problem, but I don't think it is the end all be all that some people put it as to be. And I think that it is dangerous to say that all of these people are line jumpers are illegitimately yeah. trying to find the way into this country. Not everybody who is coming up from Mexico is sneaking their way into this country. This is, as much as we didn't agree with it, not having a visa was the legal way to go for people who are coming from Mexico. So I think we have to be careful about who we blame because it's becoming, like I said, xenophobic and borderline jingoist where we just want to blame a country. Kevin, I will say, I think we're in better shape to have these conversations like the three of us are having in Canada. I look to the States and I have enough American friends down there and they're like, both guys that will likely be the nominees for president, Biden and Trump. I've got people that they, they hate what's coming out of both their uh, mouths and both sides right now. Biden, it just feels like it's open season. We're going to cut the razor wire. You want to come in, come in. He has not taken the border seriously. And Trump, to Glenn's point, it's really dangerous, xenophobic, racist rhetoric coming from Trump. So there's I think we got better choices and, and better nuance to the conversation up here than in the States. Yeah, and for the longest time, there has been a Canadian consensus around the benefits of immigration. But when you have data that clearly shows, and you know, I, I skipped over this, but when the Trudeau government lifted the requirement in 2016, by 2019, only three years later, there was an over 5,000% jump in asylum claims from 110 in 2015 to over 5,600. That in itself was a data point where you would have expected the federal government to be like, hold on, this is a huge red flag. Let's take a step back here and evaluate it. But instead, they did nothing, right? So I, I think there are real consequences to, to failures, and, and that includes what, what has happened with, with the government in power. And so when you leave these issues unaddressed, I don't blame people for being upset. What I want to focus on is the action, and I'm glad. Like I said, better late than never that they're putting this process back in place. 
All right, let's move it to um, these EV charging stations in Toronto. Uh, they're for city vehicles, a huge announcement, a cash influx yesterday, Glenn, of a ton more stations, but they're for city vehicles. And again, we can discuss the impact of electric vehicles on global warming slash climate change and, and whether or not we truly make a difference. But I hear this often among EV drivers that there's a bit of charge anxiety, that more and more companies won't meet targets and quotas for these cars um, going 100 percent EV by 2030 or 2035. So I'm asking you, how strategic should the city be? We're a pretty crowded city already with it's tough to find places to park, let alone charge a vehicle for a couple hours at a time. The city's got to be really strategic to me about where we put charging stations for citizens, let alone their own cars. Oh, that's without a doubt. And I don't think the city is doing much planning on this. I think this is one of the things they think 2030 is that's years down the line. That's future Toronto's problem. We can get that. But realistically, our infrastructure, like our critical infrastructure can't how can we know this can sustain it? Where are these going to go? How spread out throughout the city are they going to be? Are we going to find these 100 only in the downtown core or actually spread throughout Toronto? And then on that, the big thing, like you said, just where are they putting these? Where do they think there's room for these charging stations to go without being a hindrance in some way? You've said it best. We can't even find parking. Like, I truly believe in these days and age, I'm blessed to not have a car, so I don't have to even deal with trying to find parking. So trying to find parking, including... How this can be for electric TTC buses, how these will go over in the winter. All of these things, I think, need to be thoroughly vetted and should have been for a long time. I'm worried that this is a big, ambitious, but poorly planned idea that will have not many benefits. Because even through as much as 100 charging stations seem like a lot, for a 10,000 vehicle fleet, 100 charging stations is nothing. So if this is ambitious and great... This is barely a start, and how much strain will this put on already kind of struggling infrastructure? Yeah, Kevin, it's one thing if we're out in the suburbs and we've got a garage or we're out in the country and we can plug in in our car. It's another thing in a crowded city. There's 2,118 public charging stations right now in Toronto within 15 kilometers of City Hall. I looked that up last night. But to that point, that's nowhere near what we need if all this encouragement and kind of push, push, shove, shove to get us all driving EVs in several years, that's not going to work for everybody if we're not building at a higher pace. Full disclosure, I don't have an EV. I have a 14-year-old beater that's got 340,000 clicks on it, the Subaru that's still going strong. So I can't speak up about the personal experience about that charge anxiety. Um, but let's remember, who is paying for the city to have these chargers? Taxpayers. And so they must be accessible to Torontonians as well as the service, not exclusively for just a city. And, and I'm worried. You know, I agree with Glenn. I don't think they're looking ahead that, that they see this as, you know, a future problem for whoever is in office then. Um, and our current leadership has been failing Toronto already on a variety of issues, not, not least of which is turning a blind eye to safety issues. So I don't have much confidence that they're thinking ahead on the strategy as it comes to EVs and, and other infrastructure. Mm. By the way, Kevin, Glenn and I are both very aware that you've just jinxed that Subaru. So, um, yeah. you know, you're going to get that engine like going on. <laughs> well, the, the next leap day in 2024, uh, 2028, we'll see if you're still driving it. I, I, I have strong money on the other side of this. Speaking of money, Kevin, let's go to you. World Cup deal. Um, it's going to get brought up at a, uh, um, a council meeting today, a committee meeting. 
But um, I don't know if if a bad deal can get even worse. Um, But this news isn't surprising uh, in the Toronto Star that it's going to be poor for tax return. And I'm thinking, well, exactly. Of course, the city's not getting a lot of municipal kickback because taxes for anything that you buy go to the federal government and the provincial government. So um, the city here, Kevin, to me, is going to have to get unbelievably creative. I'm not sure they know what they're up against. And I didn't love a lot of uh, Olivia Chow's detail about the plan to raise money via corporate sponsorship because FIFA controls all that. MLSE controls that if FIFA doesn't control it. I think the city's really up the creek here. Yeah, let's do a quick level set. The fact is every taxpayer dollar that we pay, only 10 cents actually goes to the city. But we have to remember, though, the World Cup is more than just an international event. It's the international event. You know, in 2022, 18.8 million Canadians, or nearly half of all of us, watched the World Cup, and 1.8 billion people. That's almost a fifth of the world watching it. So, yes, there absolutely is a financial aspect to it. There always is. But there's also an opportunity now to highlight what, what mm-hmm. I think all of us can agree is probably the most amazing city in the world, right? In a, w- in a way that you can't buy but only if we're ready with the leadership to be able to reap that benefit, to make sure that we're putting our city's best foot forward, right? Use the occasion of the World Cup as the opportunity to go to the province of Bet to secure that support, um, you know, for, for a variety of issues, including, you know, some of, the, some of our downtown parks right now are being occupied by encampments. Use the World Cup as a catalyst, as the Pan Am Games was, to, to fix our city's problems, to make it safer, uh, to deal with some of the issues that we're seeing downtown, like rampant public drug use and, and all that sort of stuff. And I hope the mayor rises to that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And Glenn, I, I'm, I'm not the timing's not lost on me that Kevin points out June 2026. We're going to be either just through a new provincial election or and we'll be anticipating a new municipal election that fall. So how the city looks and how this this economic management has gone for the city, I think it's going to be pretty impactful in those elections. I can see that, but this is the fact that that's a problem. Is this is my number one issue with organizations like FIFA, the Olympics, and events like this? Instead of saying that, first off, there's some desire to make Toronto on the center of the map or on the world map. Toronto has been and is currently still on the world map. We're one of the largest cities in North America, just on that, and globally recognized as one of the most diverse cities on the planet. For some reason, people think that we need this exposure for Toronto to be respected, which we don't because we already are. And second, I don't like this mentality saying that we'll treat it almost like the Pan Am Games or like how the Olympics is infamous for doing. We're just going to clean up our city from all the undesirables. This is in less than two years' time. Well, just over two years' time, sorry. We think that we're going to solve encampments and drug addiction by how? I'm actually very curious because, Kevin, what you said there, I find... Borderline alarming, this is why I'm against this organization. How do we plan to address rampant homelessness, affordability, and drug addiction in two years' time without just grabbing all of these people, putting them on a bus, and shipping them out of the city? Which, before Kevin answers, I'll tell you, is a, um, is a tactic, Glenn, and we, all three of us know it, as tried and true as, as history itself, hosting a big sporting event. Atlanta did it in 1996. European cities. Paris will do it this summer for the Olympics. We know that this will happen. Kevin... It's a great question. Um, how do we how do we respond and clean our city up so that it looks like a shiny diamond for five weeks in the summer of 26 when it looks like it does right now? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, and I'll give you the example. I think um, for me, one of the best legacies as a Torontonian that came out of the Pan Am Games was it was the catalyst for the Union Pearson Express. Folks have been talking about that for the longest time. 
right? Um, and with the pressure of you know, the Pan Am world coming, it actually forced governments at all levels to actually get their act together um, and, and get it done. And, and I think that's what I am putting forward is, is not to, uh, Glenn, I um, forget what word you use, but to ship people away, but use the fact that the world's eyes will be on our city to give government officials and public office holders the urgency that people far too often seem to be missing to actually deal yeah. with the problems, right? So, so use this urgency to, to secure the funding and, and actually address the, the different facilities, whether it's affordable housing, um, mm. different crisis care facilities to, to actually solve problems and not kick the can out or, or just ship it away, uh, away from site. Let's move this along to the uh, Scarborough Canadian Tire Terrorist, which is a mouthful, um, but it's still, I think, concerning that we're talking about this. This is brand new for people. Um, She was in court yesterday, um, and there was the potential for her to be released on some form of parole. She refused to sign a peace bond, so they'll keep her in jail another six months and then bring her back around. And for people who are trying to remember what what happened here, she tried to join ISIS in 2016 in Syria uh, when she left Canada. She's back a year later and goes into a Canadian tire in Scarborough armed with a knife and a golf club shouting about ISIS. Staff were able to get to her, take the weapons away before anyone was being harmed. But, Glenn, I, I don't know where this goes. It's fascinating, I think. Um, and yet, I, I don't know how we can integrate somebody back into our free, so-called peaceful society, um, if if she doesn't want to be comfortable with signing an agreement that she won't attack anybody. I agree, but thinking that somebody signed an agreement will stop them from committing a crime, I think <laughs> is just beautifully naive. But yes, I won't do this again. Now, please, never bother me. Like, if we're just going to do that, I'll sign whatever paper we need to sign to let me do whatever I want. But in this, I think there's a couple of things you need to keep in mind. First and foremost, this woman was given an offer to sign the peace bond. Doesn't that She's made her choice, kind of. But second, it's really important to think in this case, not only did she not physically hurt anybody, but the judge and the lawyer both say that significant mental illness is playing a part in her actions. Schizophrenia is mentioned as well as another mental major health disorder. So to think that we should just treat this person as a run-of-the-mill terrorist or somebody who just doesn't like Canada, I think is wrong. This is a person who is suffering from a mental illness, and this is a problem with our justice system because we shouldn't be looking at punishment here this is rehabilitation we need to be looking at. I this think you, I think I think you nailed it. And but the problem is we don't have that middle ground here. You're right. People who are suffering from a, a severe mental illness shouldn't be incarcerated, but they also shouldn't be walking amongst us. And we have to find when they've co- attempted to commit a violent act. So, Glenn, I think we got to find that middle ground here and say we used to have institutions. We used to have facilities. We used to use our taxes to to fund those facilities. And then all of a sudden in the mid nineties to early two thousands, we decided, Oh, we shouldn't have them anymore. So we probably need them back. Right. We need something back because the prison system as we have now recently, what was the report from the Canadian civil liberties association, about 70% of people in provincial and territorial jails, are just awaiting bail jails in Canada are slowly falling into the American system of a prison industrial complex. And I think that's a real problem. Whereas our partners in Europe, for example, like look at Norway, They have rehabilitation centers. They have people who actually go to jail and come out with really low recidivism rates. Whereas in Canada, it's not the same case. So I think we really need to relook our justice model. And the way we are going is archaic and borderlines on barbarism, especially if we want to treat some people like this person 
who sadly may just be dealing with mental illness in a terrible way, and we just are not treating them properly. Kevin, how, how do you view it? Jail doesn't cure her mental health issues, um, but if she's a threat to, to the community, she can't be a Canadian tire uh, again. Like, we don't have a middle ground here in our society right now. I think what she needs is de-radicalization as well. Um, because not only is she unrepentant, she, she has actually declared that if, if she is not allowed to go and join ISIS, she will commit a new terrorist attack. Um, and so I think if in six months she is actually let out, and let's be honest, I don't think any of us, I don't think most people would be comfortable, but the reality is Canada, we are not ISIS, no matter how much this person wants us to be, and we can't lower ourselves to this level. We have, in Canada, rule of law, which means after someone has done the time for the crime, they are released. That being said, I think if she is released half a year from now, the proper steps have to be taken to ensure that if she does try to follow through on the claim that she says, that she will commit uh, more terrorist attacks, and that she hasn't expressed a desire to kill people, that the authorities are ready to protect us and stop her from doing all right, we only got a couple of minutes left, and I want to uh, document the passing of Richard Lewis yesterday, um, and I want to play for the audience. I love this clip. Uh, I think it's still okay to play. If not, it was nice knowing everybody. Here's him from David Letterman back in 1992, talking about a charity he wanted to get involved in. Wow, all the relationships the last 15 years that went into the toilet. PMS, with all due respect, I feel I want to be Mr. PMS. <laughs> I really feel, you're gonna put all your efforts behind I want to have a like a P, with all the respect to Jerry Lewis I want to have a PMS love network right. quite frankly because every relationship has gone south because and, and, it's, a, and it's an illness and, and there's no cure and it's a nightmare the last relationship illness, you say? you're calling it I don't illness? know what it is that's why I have to be Mr. PMS I mean I would come home looking to stamp it out then I want to stamp it out yeah, the Mr. PMS sitcom didn't last very long on the uh, on the major networks. Glenn, uh, Richard Lewis was hilarious. Has there been a comedian, musician, actor whose death you took really hard? Where we wouldn't hear you on Let's Talk for a couple days in a row. Who meant a lot to you who passed away? Oh, there's been a lot. But I want to say one of the first ones, well, not one of the first ones, but a big one that stands out to me that was years ago. But still, when Bernie Mac passed away, I found that that was a loss mm. for comedy because Bernie Mac to me was always, he was always there. He was always in the background. He always played a really fun character. I loved his deliveries. His old material when he came out on Def Jam Comedy back in the day was so inappropriate and so funny. And then out of the blue, he kind of just passed away. And I think there's been a hole in comedy for a long time since. Big fan of Mr. 3000. I love that. It's kind of a pseudo baseball movie, uh, pseudo yep, yep. Uh, man against the odds movie. Kevin, you got somebody that just uh, rocked your world that you just loved their, uh, their comedy? Well, so my wife's favorite sitcom is Friends. And so naturally, if there's something playing at home, it's Friends. I really liked Matthew Perry, I think in part because he was Canadian. So it's kind of weird now when we have Friends on to see him on TV, living and breathing, knowing that he's actually no longer with us. But to end this, I guess, on a personal note, I'm glad that this Canadian has been immortalized, I think, into a sitcom that even years later remains one of the world's top sitcoms that a lot of people continue to watch today. Yeah, he was uh, obviously filming it within the last year um, after a Parkinson's diagnosis in the spring. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of poignant, but uh, but also a bit melancholy at the same time. Guys, you both were great today. Thank you very much for your opinion. Really enjoyed the segment. No problem. Thank you. There's Glenn Bergonier and Kevin Vong. You can hear Glenn on Let's Talk with Danny Stover tonight and every night, Monday through Friday, 7 to 10. It's a national show across the Chorus Radio Network as well. If you're traveling or if you miss it, you can pick it up uh, via your smart speaker. And Kevin Vong uh, is an independent MP.